0: Well, in recent days, there's become a common way of describing the changes that have taken place in our culture. The story goes something like this. In the early 1990s through about 2014, we as Christians were living in what some have called a neutral world, a where where traditional Christianity was neither broadly supported nor specifically opposed by the surrounding culture, but rather it was just viewed as an eccentric lifestyle adopted by some people. However, that time is now over, and now we live in a negative world in which Christian morality is expressly repudiated, and traditional Christian views are perceived as undermining the social good. And certainly many of us can sense that something has shifted in our culture. It seems That our culture is more hostile to the gospel, more hostile to Christianity. That what we believe is not just viewed as something indifferent, but actually viewed as evil. But there's a problem with the way that story is told and the way that story is applied. The first problem is that I would expect, although all of us can sense something has changed in our culture, it's more hostile to the gospel, I doubt anyone would really look back on any moment in American history and say that we weren't living in a hostile culture where traditional Christianity was neither broadly supported nor opposed by the surrounding culture. Now, I think for the majority of us, our sense is we've always been living in a culture hostile to the gospel. In the late 1990s, the threat was Disney, undermining traditional family values. In the 1960s and 80s, the threat was the sexual revolution. In the 1940s and 50s, the threat was communism. And if we went back generation after generation taking polls, I'm sure every generation would say, hey, here's a significant threat to the Christian church. And this shouldn't surprise us because as Jesus said, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And so the story doesn't really match our own sense or our own experience. But the story right now is even more complicated than it seems. Although there are many factors that give us this sense that our culture is more hostile to the gospel than it used to be, some of those factors are more complicated than they appear to be. Uh, For instance, it's now well documented that we are in the greatest religious shift in the history of the United States. Over the last 25 years, 40 million adults in America today that used to go to church no longer go to church. That is the most significant change that's happened. Comparable to the Great Awakening, except greater than the Great Awakening and in the opposite direction. And that might give us the sense that people hate our faith, hate the church. It would be easy to think that so many people who've left the church hate Christianity and hate the church. But the research actually indicates that more than half of the people who've left from evangelical churches in that population in the last 25 years are actually willing to come back right now if someone would invite them. That certainly paints a very different picture. Think about how different it is to go into a conversation with someone that you know is not a Christian or is certainly not attending church. One option thinks, hey, that person hates me. They hate everything I stand for, versus the conversation, hey, for whatever reason, that person's no longer attending church. But if I ask them, they'll come. Different conversations, right? But it still reflects the fact. A shift has occurred in our culture, but it is far less hostile than we might think. But finally, one more problem with the way this story is told is the way it's applied. Almost always, it's accompanied by a recommendation that we adopt a new posture towards the culture and politics in particular, given the negative world we live in. People suggest that the evangelistic desire to minimize offense to gain a hearing for the gospel can obscure what our political moment requires. And so instead, they advocate that we take a more aggressive posture towards the culture and towards politics in particular to win our nation back. Not primarily through evangelism and discipleship, but through politics and legislation. And so to capture this posture very vividly, but in a decidedly non-Christian way, you might hear it expressed through this phrase I'm sure you've all heard. We need to own the libs. That's kind of the reflection of that posture. And while there is certainly good discussion to be had about what Christian participation in politics looks like in a democratic republic, not an empire, from my perspective, it seems like that aggressive posture towards politics and culture that some want to recommend has less to do with being faithful to Christ in a world that's not our home, and more to do with preserving our power and influence in our culture and in our government in a way that Scripture never promised we would have. And from the outside looking at and it, it also appears, not for some, not for all, but for some who adopt this way of engaging our culture, it's fear that's A, if not the, driving motivation. And we can relate. We fear for ourselves. Will I be rejected? Will I lose my job? Will I be persecuted, imprisoned, or worse if we don't win this culture war? We fear for our children. Will their public education force them to argue for a non Christian perspective, or will they be free to articulate a different perspective? Will they be pressured to adopt non Christian attitudes and perspectives towards truth, morality, and justice? We fear for our churches. Will we continue to be able to gather to worship God freely, to proclaim what God's Word says, even if it offends our culture? And on and on we could go, naming these fears. And yet, we must say that according to Scripture, the Gospel says perfect love casts out fear. And that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And so the question before us this morning is this. If God would not have us engage a culture hostile to the gospel with an aggressive posture, seeking to maintain our power and influence at all costs, so that we could make sure that whatever we fear happens to us, to our children, or to our churches doesn't happen, then how should we engage a culture that hates the gospel? Well, as we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Risen Christ, we've seen in recent weeks, Paul is beginning to make his way and actually arrived back in Jerusalem. And there he was opposed. Some Jews who hate the gospel falsely accused him, leading to him being beaten and accused and arrested. And this week we'll now see how Paul responds to and defends himself against this culture that's hostile to the faith that we hold dear. And as we consider Acts 21 verse 37 through chapter 22, verse 22, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us to engage a culture hostile to the gospel with convictional kindness. To engage a culture hostile to the gospel with convictional kindness. As Greg Strand, the director of theology and credentialing for our denomination puts it, we're committed to convictional kindness, convictional because we affirm unflinchingly the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, yet we do so with kindness. Kindness. that's a fruit of the Spirit. And so we both affirm the truth of the Scriptures and we reflect the truth we proclaim with our lips. But what does convictional kindness look like? We see three characteristics in our passage. Convictional kindness feels compassion. Convictional kindness practices civility. And convictional kindness speaks courageously. But before we dive into God's Word, let's pray. Father, we confess on a topic like this, as we come to your word, we need your help. Our hearts are full of all sorts of different emotions, sorts of apprehensions about our culture and the world we're living in, that we will live in one day. So as we come to your word, we ask that you would help us to understand it. You would help us to apply it to our lives, that you would help us to be willing to receive it. But Lord, I ask most of all that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be exalted. Regardless of what's going on in the world around us, our time together this morning would be a moment that we come to love and treasure Christ more deeply because of how much you have loved us. And that would empower us, strengthen us, enable us not to engage our culture with fear or anger but to engage in a way that would commend the gospel by standing firm in the truth and yet being kind towards those who hate the truth. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 21, verse 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one of our community Bibles, either under your seat or the seat next to you. Uh, If you are not familiar with the scriptures, you can find our passage on page 931 of our community Bibles. You'll be looking for a big, bold 21. That's a chapter followed by a small number, 37. That's a verse. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We'd be delighted for you to take this home and continue to engage God's word throughout the week. But once you have found Acts chapter 21, verse 37, uh, take a moment to quiet and prepare your own heart. Uh, You know what anxieties, fears, what anger you might have as we consider a topic like this. Surrender that to the Lord and ask that his spirit would speak to you through his word. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready." ready. Wonderful. Look with me at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Here we see that convictional kindness feels compassion. Convictional kindness feels compassion. Uh, As we saw last week, again, some Jews from Asia who hated the gospel falsely accused Paul of teaching everyone everywhere against the people, the law, and the temple And as a result, he was brutally beaten by the Jews in the crowd who wanted to kill him, thinking this accusation was true. And yet, just in time to save him, Roman soldiers show up, rescue him, and arrest him in the process. And now that Paul has been rescued from the mob, he asks to speak to the tribune in charge of all the soldiers who had arrested him. And the tribunal is clearly surprised that Paul spoke Greek. Supposing that he was an Egyptian who had led a revolt of some 4,000 assassins, men who would normally go into a crowd and take out political figures, but who had accumulated together, we learn from the early Jewish historian Josephus, to bring this army against Jerusalem, to tear down their walls. And yet, Felix, the governor of this place that we'll meet in a few chapters later in Acts, was able to defeat them. But the leader, this Egyptian, escaped. escaped. He was not among those who were defeated. And so the tribunal thinks that they've caught this Egyptian terrorist. And they've kind of snuck up on a a wonderful gift to be able to present to the governor. But Paul quickly corrects him, establishing he's not an Egyptian. He's a Jew from Tarsus. And what he does next is even more surprising. The reason he speaks to the tribunal in the first place is to plead with him to let him address the crowd that had just cried to kill him. and when he is granted permission to speak, the whole crowd quiet downs as the person they thought was an outsider corrupting the temple actually is speaking in their language. not an outsider, but an insider. And he's one who recognizes that he is addressing both brothers and fathers in order to make a defense of himself. Now Paul's desire to speak to the crowds at this moment is truly remarkable. One pastor points out, we need to remember the rioters had just been beating Paul. They were trying to kill him. They charged him falsely with deeds he had not done. And he had only been rescued in the nick of time by these Roman soldiers. Paul could not have been more than five minutes from his death when he was rescued. So the disappointed crowd, robbed of their prey, pressed forward as Paul was being led out of the mob, only safe because of the soldiers' presence. So let me ask you, if you were in that same situation, what do you think you would feel? Most of us would feel afraid or angry or some mixture of both. Fear that we might die at the hands of a violent mob. Despite having been rescued, the mob is still there. And he's only safe because the soldiers have literally lifted him up in the air to get him away from the crowd. Paul's still in danger, especially as he turns back to speak to them. But he also may have been angry, angered over the unjust accusation and arrest. And surely Paul would have felt these things too. Yet despite the fear, despite the anger, despite the coming danger, Paul asked to speak to the crowd. Why would he do that? We get into a window into Paul's heart in Romans 9. There he writes this. Speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unseeking anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is, of course, how Paul addresses the crowds at the beginning of his speech. Brothers, fathers. They're his kinsmen. They're the people he loves. They're people that, if possible, he would be cut off from Christ. If possible, he would surrender his salvation so that they might know Christ and not be cut off from him. And so surely, though he felt fear and anger in his situation, it was not those emotions that motivate his actions. Rather, it was his compassion, his love, his desire for those who are far from Christ to be brought near. And sensing the rare opportunity to talk to an assembled crowd in Jerusalem, he jumps at the opportunity. And this heart that motivates Paul is the same heart that motivated Jesus. Consider how Jesus' heart was described towards Jerusalem. This is Jesus' words. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Yet you are not willing. This is the heart of compassion. A heart that looks at a city and sees that you hate the prophets. You hate me. You hate everything I stand for. Yet if you would, I'd gather you in. If you would, I'd receive you. And what was true of Jesus' heart for Jerusalem is true of Jesus' heart for you. As Paul describes in Romans... God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The appropriate response to a culture that's hostile to the gospel, and not just hostile to the gospel, but who personally hate us and are opposed to us and attack us, is not fear, it's not anger, but compassion. Convictional kindness feels compassion. So, for just a moment, let me invite you imagine. The people who have hurt you most deeply. Perhaps it's a family member. Perhaps it's a coworker who undermines you. Think of the friend who has betrayed you. Think of the political tribe that you count as the greatest threat to our nation. Or think of the theological tribe you think is the greatest threat to the church. What's your attitude towards them? Is it Fear? Is it anger and bitterness? Or is it compassion? If you don't feel compassion for them, then there's no way you'll ever engage them with convictional kindness. so There's no way you'll ever winsomely engage them with the gospel. You'll either out of fear run away, or in anger you'll attack them, neither of which will commend Christ. So what should we do when we lack compassion for those who hurt us, hate us, are hostile towards us. Well first. Remember the gospel. While you were enemies of Jesus. He died for you. While you were hostile towards him. He gave his life for you. Allow what Jesus has done for you. To move you. To faith. To love. But then secondly. Do as Jesus commanded. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. You can't pray for blessing on someone very long without your heart growing compassionate towards them. It's hard to pray blessing on someone else at the same time you're wishing for them to die. You're wishing for them to have consequences unfold on their life. And personally, there are a few churches in our area that I would not consider... Enemies of the gospel or even enemies of our church. And yet every time I hear about what's going on there, I am not excited. And I probably get angry and bitter. And for these ministries, the greatest antidote to my heart has been to pray for them. To pray for God's blessing upon them. And I found that the longer and more consistently that I pray for these churches, the more the Holy Spirit produces compassion in me towards them. And if we're honest, for many of us, our practice as a church of obeying First Timothy 2 by praying each week for kings and all who are in high positions has the same effect on our heart, right? As we pray for a variety of political leaders on both sides of the political aisle, week by week, you may find yourself bracing yourself as we pray for someone by name. And yet, as we do that together, that's the very antidote to our fear and our rage against them. We find ourselves reminded that all politicians are people. People in need of the gospel. And people just like us who are in need of wisdom to do justice in the culture around them. So convictional kindness feels compassion. And when we don't feel compassion towards those who hate us or are hostile towards us, we pray for those who have hurt us, hate us, or are hostile towards us. Trusting that as we do, the Lord will turn our heart with compassion towards them. But now look with me at verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 2, to see the second characteristic of convictional kindness. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. He said this, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city educated at the field of Gamaliel, according to the strictest manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that it is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And so now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Here we see convictional kindness practices civility. Convictional kindness practices civility. Now, civility is not really a word we use anymore, so let me offer a definition. Civility is the lost art of formal politeness and courtesy in behavior or speech. Civility is treating others with dignity and respect, even when you disagree sharply with them. Instead of speaking the truth abrasively, civility seeks to be winsome and wise as it speaks the truth. And we Yes, civility is the formal politeness and courtesy in behavior or speech. And civility is woven. Uh, Throughout Paul's defense of his ministry. Paul begins the defense of his ministry to the Gentiles in three phases. He recounts his training. He recounts his zeal for persecuting Christians. And only then does he uh, recount his conversion to Christianity. I want us to notice, rather than antagonizing them further, he's laboring to identify with them. First, he speaks to them in the Hebrew language, making it clear. This is a conversation just for them. The Romans, the foreigners who are listening in, they don't get to listen in on this conversation. Second, he recounts how he's not just any Jew, but he's actually a Jew who grew up in this very city that he stands on trial. He's a Jew who was trained by Gamaliel, who Acts chapter 5 says was respected by all the people. All the Jews held him in high regard. And further, he's trained in the strictest manner of the law. As Paul would point out in his letter to the Philippians, Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's identifying with them in every way. Third, even as the people were zealous for God, as demonstrated in their fierce desire to kill someone they thought had defiled their temple, Paul was even more zealous, persecuting Christians, men and women, with the authority of the highest Jewish authorities. And so one pastor describes his speech thus far this way. Look how far Paul is going to be generous. He's describing the mob action as being zealous for God. Talk about looking at something positively. He gives them credit for their motivation. So from one vantage point, their actions were abusive, violent, impulsive, and bigoted. But Paul discerned their heart and saw a foundational passion to honor the glory of God. And so he's willing to call what they're doing today an expression of being zealous for God. He says that he even persecuted Christianity out of a desire to serve God. And so he's saying in the strongest terms possible, I once was exactly where you are today. I understand exactly how you feel right now, even as you seek to kill me. The priest and the council can attest to it. They were the ones who gave me the authority to do it. Not only is all this very disarming, but he's being a great storyteller. At this point, everyone listening in is wondering, wait, then how did a person like you become a christian and so paul now turns his attention to that question and he points out the only reason he was converted to christianity was because god literally revealed himself to them when jesus asked him why are you persecuting me not why are you persecuting the church not why are you persecuting my body but why are you persecuting me And it's this powerful revelation of Christ to him that's finally enough for him to recognize that he's in rebellion against God and needs to repent and turn from his persecution to follow Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, let me just pause here for a moment to point out that all of our faith rests on eyewitness testimonies like this. Paul and hundreds of others said they saw the risen Christ, which means two things for you. First, the Christian faith is not something irrational that you have to believe against the evidence. It's a faith based upon real historic evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. You can actually be intellectually honest and a Christian. But second, because the Christian faith is based upon eyewitness testimony, it's not just a matter of abstract principles to consider whether or not you believe it. An abstract way of life that you can decide whether or not I want to live like that. No, your decision to follow Christ, to trust the gospel, is also a moral claim concerning the eyewitnesses. If you reject the gospel, you're telling Paul and those like him that they are either fools or fakes. They're either fools for believing among hundreds of others that they really saw Jesus alive. Or they're all fakes because they just made this whole thing up. But how are you going to look at Paul to his face, given what he believed, given his training, given the various reasons he has to reject Christianity, given his willingness to suffer and die, and tell Paul that he's a fool or a fake? No, I think the better way is to realize that Paul really experienced the risen Christ and to receive his testimony more importantly to this passage, I want you to notice that even at this point, the most controversial claim he's made, he's being very careful and very respectful of his audience. Paul has just described Jesus as Lord, which is the thing that got Jesus killed when Jesus made himself equal with God. But Paul is going through great pains to make it clear that even this claim is one that was revealed to him by the God of their fathers, all the Jews, the same God they worship. The man who explains to Paul what he must do is Ananias. He's described here as a man who is well-respected by all the Jews, one who's devoted to the law. And Ananias makes it clear that the message he's received for Paul has come from the God of our fathers, the one that they all worship together. And this God they all worship then is the one who has revealed Jesus is the righteous one of Isaiah. And it's this God has given Paul the mission to be a witness to what he's seen and heard. And even as he points all these things out, Paul is being very, very careful to not unnecessarily provide offense by talking about what got him into trouble in the first place. He's burdened to make sure that these people hear of the hope they can have in Christ, which is where Paul ends this section of his speech. It recounts how Ananias urged Paul, given his revelation, to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, this passage, and others like it, is sometimes used to teach something called baptismal regeneration. Uh, That's a fancy term uh, that has many different forms, but in its most simple form simply means that people believe baptism is what saves you. Uh, That until you've actually been baptized... You have not been made spiritually alive. You have not had your sins washed away. But that's not the best way to understand this passage or the rest of the testimony of Scripture. In this particular passage, there's only two commands. The two commands are, be baptized, and there's a command to wash away your sins. So a more clear, I hope, way to translate this verse might actually be, rising, not rise and be baptized, but rising, be baptized, and calling on his name, wash away your sins. And I hope that translation of this verse makes it a little more clear that what washes away our sins is not baptism, but calling on the name of Jesus and repentance and faith. As Peter said all the way back in Acts chapter 4, there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our sins are washed away when we call on the name of Jesus and repentance and faith. Yet, as many scholars and commentators would point out, so close is the association between baptism and the new covenant blessings in Christ. Baptism alone often, representatively, describes the entire conversion experience. As such, when received in faith, baptism reflects and represents spirit-wrought regeneration, that you have been made spiritually alive. Baptism represents inward cleansing. Baptism represents renewal and the forgiveness of sins and the abiding presence of the Spirit of God as a sign and seal testifying and guaranteeing that the believer will be permanently kept until Christ returns. And so while baptism doesn't save us or regenerate us, it does represent a sign and seal of the washing away of our sins through the name of Jesus as we receive him in faith. And it's these blessings that Paul is burdened for his listeners to receive. He wants them to know that there can be freedom from their guilt. He wants them to know that there's healing from their shame. He wants them to know that there's an antidote to their anxiety as they worry whether or not they'll be acceptable before God. They truly can be washed clean. And if you're not a Christian, the same is true for you. You can be forgiven all your sin. You can be freed from your burden of guilt. You can be cleansed from all your shame. And you too can be cured of the anxiety of wondering whether or not you are enough. And to receive all this, you simply turn from your sin and call upon the name of Jesus. Trusting that his life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for you. Resting on that work. Trusting that you, by God's grace, through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, have been made acceptable before God. And so if you'd want that, if you'd turn from your sin and trust in him, you'll be washed clean. And I would plead with you, make that decision today. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ. And if you're not ready to do that because you sense how big a deal it is, please, then at the very least, come talk with us about who Jesus is, what he's done for you so that you can begin to consider whether you might trust him and follow him all your days. But the bigger picture, I want you to notice here, again, is that Paul is going through painstaking labor to not give additional offense to his hostile Jewish audience. Convictional kindness practices civility. In every way he possibly could, he identified with them and he even graciously credited them with good motives for their wicked work. Paul made it clear that he was not an insurrectionist, he was a faithful Jew. Paul has not abandoned the law. He's zealous for it. Paul only became a Christian after the God they all worshiped, revealed himself to them. And he recognizes their attempt to kill him. Their brutal beatings of him actually reflect a good desire to honor God. Formally, there is no reason for this hostile audience to be hostile towards Paul. There is no legitimate grounds for accusation against him. And the same should be true of every Christian's engagement with culture. We should identify with people we're speaking to as best we can. We should give them no legitimate or formal grounds to accuse us or complain against us because we've been so respectful and so kind. And we should give them credit for everything we possibly can. If we agree on a principle but disagree on an application, we honor the principle we share in common. If we see their motivation is good but their execution is less than ideal and maybe even evil and wicked, we still celebrate the good motivation. We should attempt to communicate our message as winsomely as possible, working to show how what we believe is not just true, but good and beautiful, and is even the answer to their deepest longings and hopes. However, as Tim Keller points out, many of us have had situations in which people were offended when we tried to talk about our faith. Often these were incidents with family members, How many of us know stories of college students who went away to college, came back to their family to let them know they had only just become a Christian even after growing up in their family's church? And so we need to consider these kinds of experience and to analyze where the offense came from. Is it they're offended by the gospel or were they offended by us? We should ask, were we as flexible and inoffensive as Paul? Were we as compassionate as Paul? Paul's motive here was obviously not to win the argument, but to win hearts. Was that our motive when we engaged them in conversation? Did we work hard to give credit where credit was due? After all, again, Paul tells this murderous crowd that he knew they were really trying to honor God. So have you given people who don't believe the gospel credit for what they are doing right? Convictional kindness practices civility. However, as we seek to be winsome, kind, and civil, we also face a danger from a different direction. And this is one of the things those advocating for a more aggressive and a bold approach towards our culture get right. One representative of this perspective writes this. If we assume that winsomeness will gain a favorable hearing, when Christians consistently receive heated pushback, we'll be tempted to think that our convictions are the problem. If winsomeness is met with hostility, it's easy to wonder, are we in the wrong? Thus, the slide towards secular culture's reasoning is greased. and So a secular-friendly politics has problems similar to a secular or seeker-friendly worship. An excessive concern to appeal to the unchurch is plagued by the accommodationist temptation. In other words, the ongoing temptation of those practicing civility is to compromise. And this is where we need to pay attention to the final characteristic of convictional kindness. So look with me at chapter 22, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw Jesus saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Here we see convictional kindness speaks courageously. Convictional kind of speaks courageously. So while up to this point, Paul has avoided every possible offense to the hostile crowd, he now begins to speak courageously about the very things he knows will offend them. Yet even here, we should again notice he labors to practice civility. Notice the first thing is he says Jesus tells him to leave this city because Jesus knows they're not going to receive his testimony. What a hard word to speak to people. Imagine me saying to this congregation, Jesus has told me to leave because you're so hard-hearted, you won't listen to what he's told me to tell you. That's the sense of what Paul has been told to say to this group. Yet even with that hard word, he describes how he held the people of Jerusalem in high regard. Although Jesus told them that he knows they won't receive his testimony, Paul says, of course they'll be willing to hear my testimony. They know that I was persecuting Christians. They know that I was in approval over the first martyr's death. Surely that will win a hearing among them. But Jesus doubles down. He says, no, go and go far away. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Now remember, Paul is not simply recounting his conversion here. He knew his audience would not like this particular aspect of his call into ministry. Paul's association with Gentiles is what had gotten him into trouble in the first place. But this is not just an incidental part of the story. It's critical to the message. The good news that Paul was proclaiming is the good news that those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Salvation had finally come to all people through Israel's Messiah. But as one scholar points out, this is not a betrayal of the gospel's Jewish roots, but rather the fulfillment of God's promises given to Israel for Israel and for the world. And yet with this word that he sent to the Gentiles, things come unhinged. They won't listen to him anymore. They demand he be taken away and put to death. They're outraged to hear Paul declare that salvation has come to the Gentiles, that even those people have been included in the family of God. And here we learn the counter perspective to the last point. As one pastor points out, even the greatest effort at gospel communication can fail. Though Paul makes absolutely every possible attempt to avoid offense, the crowd literally ignites and perhaps even got worse than it was before. And so we may find that despite all our hard work, people will still reject the message and may even be very hostile towards us. And so it's for this reason, convictional kindness not only practices civility, but speaks courageously. Yes, we do everything we possibly can to minimize offense to the gospel, but we can never forget the gospel itself is offensive. While there is much good news in the gospel, that's literally what the word means. At its core, the good news requires us to come face to face with some very hard truths. All of us are sinners before a holy God. Even our best works are but filthy rags. Therefore, we cannot save ourselves. We need someone else to rescue us. And because this is true for all people, this means even the people we think are least deserving of entering the kingdom of God stand just as much a chance as we do, by God's grace. Now, as freeing as these truths are when received in faith, it's also true that these are tough pills to swallow. We have to be humble enough to recognize we have a need. We have to be humble enough to recognize that need can only be met by someone else. And we have to be humble enough to recognize that if we can get in on this, then anyone can. This is offensive. And yet this is part of what it means to engage a culture hostile to the gospel with the gospel. We must kindly yet courageously speak our convictions. And when people are offended by this, we're not surprised. We're ready. As one pastor describes it, if we get through our lives as Christians without ever upsetting or offending anyone, it's likely that we've not ministered with integrity. Yet this is one of the greatest temptations we face. In order to be like, accepted, or received, we compromise and soften the sharp edges of the gospel so as to accommodate our culture. Instead of convictional kindness, we just practice kindness, kindness, which actually isn't kindness because we've surrendered the truth. And these days, there's so many convictions we're tempted to compromise on. And out of this desire to accommodate our culture in order to be received by our culture, many have said things like this. Scripture isn't true in everything it affirms. It's only true on matters of faith and practice. Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, but all of us can find our path towards God. On the last day, there won't be a final judgment because in the end, love wins. It doesn't matter who you marry as long as you faithfully commit your marital vows. Love is love after all. And on and on, I could go rehearsing the various points of tension between the historic, traditional, Orthodox Christian faith and our culture. So I'd ask you this morning, where are you tempted to compromise on the gospel in order to be well-received by those who hate the gospel. Is it one of the things I just mentioned? Is there another point of struggle for you? If that's the case, let me encourage you first, go back to the Bible. Make sure what you believe is actually in the Bible, and not just a result of the culture you grew up in. But if it is in the Bible, trust that what God has said is not only true, but good. As Paul would write in 2 Timothy, all scripture is profitable, beneficial, good for our souls. But there is a tension here. Some of us are by disposition and personality wired to lean towards kindness. We're the ones more likely to compromise the gospel. But others among us are by disposition and personality wired to lean towards convictions and protecting the truth. We're the ones more likely to put up barriers to the gospel by being aggressive over other things. Do you know which way you lean? Towards kindness? Towards conviction? If you don't, ask someone else. I'm sure it's probably obvious to everyone else. (laughs) And then work to develop whatever side you're weaker on. If you're strong on the conviction side, then lean into practicing civility. If you're strong on the kindness side, then lean into speaking courageously. And it's this tension that's at the heart of one of our values as a church, being a hospitable community, by which we mean we aim to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us. How did Christ welcome us? When we were enemies, Christ welcomed us into his family by dying for us. And this heart posture of welcoming others means we're going to strive to remove all barriers to the gospel except the gospel itself. And our language, and our practices, and our culture, and everything. And so when we practice civility, we're seeking to remove all those barriers to the gospel. We want to understand how our language, our practices, our culture could unintentionally become a barrier to the very gospel we want someone to hear and receive. And we remove it. Yet in speaking courageously, we recognize that the gospel itself is sometimes the barrier to people receiving the gospel. In which case, we can't water it down. We can't compromise it. Instead, we must speak the truth courageously, trusting, as Paul writes, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And although in this particular case, the Jews respond by rejecting Paul and the message that he has declared to them, we must not forget the miraculous conversion story that we've also heard rehearsed in this same chapter. Paul would have gone down in his yearbook as the least likely person to become a Christian. And yet, the Spirit of God changed even his cold, hard, stony heart. And so although we should never be surprised when someone is offended by the gospel or hostile towards us because of the gospel, at the very same time, we must not lose heart nor lose hope because the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, turns hard-hearted people into the people of God. And so we engage a culture hostile to the gospel with convictional kindness. We engage our hostile culture out of compassion and love for them, in the midst of their brokenness and their hostility, because this is what Jesus did for us. While we were his enemies, he died for us. We engage our hostile culture with civility, laboring to show respect, to give them credit where we can, and to avoid giving unnecessary offense. And we engage our hostile culture with courageous speech, proclaiming the gospel in all its fullness. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Therefore, Repent and believe the gospel, that your sins may be blotted out. And ultimately, we do all of this, recognizing that as we engage a hostile culture with convictional kindness, we're not guaranteed a favorable response. But instead, we trust that while some will double down on their hate for us because they hate our Savior, that others will see how great, how good, how gracious our Savior is, and embrace Him in repentance and faith. Embrace him with love and joy. So Northern, let's be a church community that engages the world around us, as hostile as they may be, with convictional kindness. And so as we conclude our time together in God's word this morning, let me invite us to reflect on what he's been saying to us. Perhaps these questions on the screen will be a help to you. What will you do to cultivate compassion through prayer for those you believe are hostile towards you or the gospel? How do you need to grow and respect kindness and civility towards those who are hostile towards you or the gospel? Where are you tempted to compromise on the gospel in order to be well-received by those who hate the gospel? And finally, how does Jesus' death for you while you or his enemy motivate you to practice convictional kindness? Let's take some time to consider what God has been saying to us through his word. James commands us, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So Northwood, if the Spirit of God through the word of God has stirred your heart with conviction of sin, thankfulness for Jesus, or a desire to walk in obedience, then right now, briefly, just take a moment to confess that sin, to thank God for what he's done for you in Christ, or to resolve by the Spirit's help to walk in obedience to him. Heavenly Father, we confess that it is far easier for our hearts to respond to those we count as enemies with fear or anger rather than compassion. But Lord, we thank you that while we were your enemies, you didn't run away, you didn't antagonize, but instead you sent your son to die for us. Please, out of that reality, help us. To be kind, respectful, loving, and compassionate to those who are our enemies. And yet, at the very same time, help us, because of what Christ has done for us, to never compromise the gospel, but instead to stand firm on the faith that was once for all revealed to us by your word. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.